Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The migrant crisis on the border continues with very few solutions in place, and the numbers are expected to swell going into April and May. In the Rio Grande Valley, we're hearing of border agents releasing migrants without court dates. And in Donna, Texas, we've seen the first pictures of overcrowding in a temporary overflow facility. For more on what the scene is like at the southern border, we'll speak to Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios. So the images that were released by Congressman Cuellar, who is a Democrat whose district is on the border between the U.S. and Mexico, um, the photos really give us our first real glimpse into the the circumstances that migrants are finding themselves in after they cross the border, especially in these overflow facilities. You see fairly crowded rooms of people. There are kind of these plastic dividers that keep different groups of migrants separate from each other. We see the aluminum blankets to help keep them warm. You see them laying on the ground. And it's important to note that of these pods that we see surrounded by plastic separators, they're supposed to only hold around 250 to 260 people, but at least one of them had more than 400 boys held in it. So we're certainly seeing overcrowding in some of these stations. Let's talk a little bit uh, about another story that popped up also. This uh, was concerning Border Patrol agents who were uh, getting some of these migrants and then letting them go without giving them a, a court date, any paperwork. I think they did say that they were still at least screening them, getting biometric information and all that, but they weren't getting any court dates or other paperwork. This was something that, as I was reporting this out and talking to various sources involved in this, they were pretty shocked that Border Patrol would be using prosecutorial discretion to just release people without so much as a court date. It's something that people said was unprecedented. Well, certainly Border Patrol and ICE have in the past released families and sometimes given them notices to appear in court that don't even have a date on it. There have certainly been circumstances where officials have felt the need to very quickly release families. But this really is a very clear example of just how overrun and overworked a lot of border officials are, that they're at a place where they feel the need to very quickly release people once they catch them crossing the border and not even giving them a court date to show up to. And sometimes there's been reports of migrants being uncertain about how they would be contacted in the future after being released from Border Patrol. The numbers aren't as bad yet as they were in 2019 at the very peak of the surge. But, you know, we're still waiting for April and May when it gets a little warmer. These are the peak months for migration. So we're expecting this to get a little worse. You know, we're also seeing the Biden administration not using Title 42, which is the mechanism that they would use to send families back to Mexico and all that, not using it that much uh, when it comes to families. Yeah, to your first point, the key word is really yet that we haven't seen the levels that we saw in 2019. Right now, the only public monthly data that we have from the Department of Homeland Security is for February. And even in February, when you look at the unaccompanied minors crossing the border, it is already pretty close to the peak of 2019. We are a long way off when it comes to family migrants crossing the border compared to 2019. 
but we have already seen those numbers start to pick up pretty quickly. And as you pointed out, we're seeing that the Biden administration continues to say that they're using Title 42 to return families, that their policy is to return families across the border to Mexico. But in the past week, according to data that I was able to obtain, they've only been able to return about 13 percent of families who have crossed the border, which is a very low number and far lower than it has been in previous months. Solutions to all this. Obviously, this is very tough to handle. The Biden administration is is trying as hard as they can. They sent some officials over to Mexico and Guatemala to see what kind of deals that they can work out. Did we get any information about what happened with those deals or possible solutions to getting this under control? We're not sure exactly what they've been working out with Mexico and Guatemala after those talks, but we are seeing the administration look at a couple of different avenues to try to solve this problem. And of course, immigration is very complex and there's not really going to be one fix to everything. But one thing that they're doing is trying to make sure that they can more quickly release families and children who are in their care to make room for more migrants coming across the border. And that includes releasing kids to families who are already in the U.S. quicker. The other thing, as you pointed out, is they are in discussions with Mexico and Guatemala about how to address these migration trends and things that they've talked about in the past include creating asylum or refugee systems that allow migrants to apply from their home country to prevent them from coming across Guatemala and Mexico to the U.S. And they've already restarted one program that allows some migrant minors to do just that. Well, we'll continue to see how this shapes up. As we mentioned, you know, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better just coming into these next few months. So we'll see what happens and how the administration tackles it all. Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, we're still monitoring the campaign to unionize at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Mail-in voting is still underway, and working conditions at these warehouses are in the spotlight. Meanwhile, employees at other locations are gathering signatures, discussing potential strikes, and consulting with unions about other campaigns. For more on this, we'll speak to Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal. This has become a really big deal. I mean, when you have the president of the United States weighing in on it, you know, you've kind of reached a certain level of, of attention. And I think why we why we saw that is, you know, Amazon is obviously one of the biggest and most powerful companies in the world. It's the leading online retailer. And the pandemic especially, I think, put a lot of people's attentions on the working conditions of essential employees and the kind of lives that they live inside these warehouses. And so I think you saw workers kind of capitalize in a sense on people paying more attention to that and kind of drawing you know attention to that with Amazon and, and specifically at this facility in, in, in Bessemer. And of course, it's a big deal too, because Amazon doesn't have any employees that are unionized, not even in their corporate ranks. So I think everybody's watching very closely because of that. And what we've seen is we've seen for a number of years, you, you know, some organization going on. Uh, even last year, there were walkouts at some facilities. And, you know, there's been somewhat of an increased activity around the Bessemer uh, situation because I think a lot of people are kind of waiting to see what happens there, a lot of workers. But also, you know, in their own right, workers are kind of organizing already in the, in the best way that they feel is appropriate. Something that I've learned through my reporting is, you know, every facility is different. Every every worker group is different. And so 
some groups might think that it's best to do a strike. Uh, another group, uh, you know, that I talked to in Chicago has pressured the company, you know, without any union representation, just on their own, forming petitions and that sort of thing. And they've had some success within the past. So I think what you're seeing is different types of employees going about this route in different ways. And while we might not see another formalized union push like we see in Bessemer, I mean, we might or we might not. We have to see, I think, organizing at Amazon and, and the sort of outspokenness by employees is something that we can expect to you know, continue seeing and, and, and possibly seeing in, in stronger numbers. These workers were there throughout the pandemic working very hard. You know, a lot of them are the reason why they're fighting is because of, you know, the policies there, the, the quotas, the rate at which they have to prepare packages, break times, shift schedules. Classic working condition stuff is what they're fighting. I think that the Bessemer situation is will be interesting to see how it plays out because if they are able to, you know, kind of achieve this, well, you do see some of these kind of policy changes inside Amazon. And they've, of course, they have made changes throughout the pandemic in terms of giving workers, you know, whether it was extra pay for a period of time or changing some processes at the warehouses in terms of safety. You know, they have done those sort of things. But in terms of work pace and, you know, hourly pay and, and benefits and number of breaks, those are sort of things that I think we're kind of all looking out for to see if they change and could they change through this process, which would be pretty significant, especially especially the rate of, you know, how fast the packages have to be completed. That's not only at the heart of what workers are concentrating on in terms of their message, but that's a very important thing of how Amazon does what it does, right? right? Gets our packages to us so quickly is because the pace of their work is extremely high. You know, they're doing exactly. hundreds of packages per hour for 10 hours a day. So it's intriguing in that way as well. Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Also this week, another mass shooting rocked Colorado and the country, leaving families mourning the loss of loved ones and many residents asking, why does this keep happening in Colorado? Easy access to guns plays a part, as it did in this case, where the shooter obtained his gun just days before the shooting. Colorado also has a history with mass shootings, with tragedies in Aurora, Littleton, and at Columbine High School. The picture of the shooter that is emerging is one of an angry, lonely, and possibly paranoid man. For more on this, we'll speak to Alicia Victoria Lozano, national reporter at NBC News. There isn't just one answer um, to the question of why does this keep happening? Unfortunately, Colorado does have the dubious distinction of having had quite a few mass killings over the last 30 to 40 years. Columbine is a huge, a big example. The Aurora movie theater shooting is another big one. But there's also been other ones in Thornton, at a Walmart, Colorado Springs had quite a few. You know, the conversation is a little bit tricky because on the one hand, you want to mention, of course, the contagion effect, as you mentioned, where some of the most, and I want to use a word that I didn't use yesterday, but a psychologist used when we were discussing this, he called two of these mass shootings in Aurora and Columbine kind of the most iconic mass shootings in recent history. Right. And the reason he used iconic is because of the spectacular nature surrounding those. You know, one is at a high school, and the other one is at a movie theater where they're showing The Dark Knight Rises. And there's a lot of little cultural things that people really gravitated towards, whether it's the trench coats or 
this sort of outsider reputation or, of course, sitting in a movie theater, which millions of Americans up until the pandemic were doing routinely. Uh, So those two things kind of bring this out, make it stand out a little bit more. One expert told me that it almost set the stage for future mass shootings in the United States when when the kind of shooter takes center stage. And that's why when we talk about mass shootings now, especially in the media, we're trying to make an effort to now focus more on the victims versus the suspect. Because if there is a contagion out there, the last thing anybody wants to do is make them the center of the story. You're right. And we've seen in the past where other shooters drew callbacks to the Columbine shooters as inspiration, things like that. You know, like you said, maybe that ex- why that expert used that word iconic, because that's kind of what happens. They look to these other people for that. And you're completely right about the victims. You know, we don't want to lose sight of them. So if, if I may, I'm going to take a quick little minute to name all of them so that people know, uh, you know, people have already started speaking out about it, talking about how important those people were in their lives and what they meant to their community. So Definitely want to name them very briefly. Boulder police officer Eric Talley. He was the first officer there to arrive on the scene. He unfortunately passed. And the other dead that were identified were Denny Strong, Nevin Stanisic, Ricky Olds, Trelona Bartowiak, Suzanne Fountain, Terry Liker, Kevin Mahoney, Lynn Murray, and Jody Waters. These are all the people that we lost from this attack. And throughout all of this, you know, we started hearing from the family of the shooter himself. They're painting a picture of somebody who might have been mentally unstable, who was angry, who felt he was bullied. And the conversation comes into how did he obtain this firearm? He bought it legally just days before the shooting. Since then, President Biden has already called for action on gun control, urging Congress to do things like that. He might do an executive order on guns. This is all stuff that we have yet to see. But in Colorado, The easy access to firearms is another thing. I think there was a a bill that was shot down or or, or something that changed in their local legislature that had something to do with gun action. Monday's shooting actually happened 10 days after a judge blocked a ban on assault rifles in the city of Boulder. And Boulder actually passed that in 2018 in response to the mass shooting at Parkland. And if you remember, that was at a high school. 17 people were killed. So Boulder officials had moved to try to take, if not all guns, because Colorado, like many states, is a, you know, it's a, it's a hunting state. People like to use guns not for violence, per se, but for sport. And so what they were trying to do really was remove a weapon that isn't necessarily used for sport, but is associated with a high death toll. And that is the assault cell. Weapon. And that's what we're seeing again this week with the AR-556, which was purchased on March 16th. And as I said, that was just 10 days after a federal judge revoked the ban on assault-style weapons. So once again, we're kind of back at the, at the same conversation that we've had many times over the years, about decades now, about, you know, what is an appropriate weapon, a firearm, that Americans should be allowed to to keep in their homes. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I did want to mention, uh, one of the experts that I spoke with yesterday, he actually did a study in 2016 looking at mass violence in more than 170 countries throughout the world. And the United States came number one for mass shootings. And 
he pointed out that the United States is not a more violent place than some of these other countries. But, for instance, the number two country for mass shootings is Yemen, and they were a distant second to the United States. Yemen, of course, has been embroiled in war for years now, and yet the United States is still outpacing Yemen when it comes to mass shootings. And the reason for that is there is a lot of weapons. There are a lot of firearms in the United States. By some estimates, there are more firearms in the U.S. than there are civilians in the U.S. So since Columbine, which was 1999, there have been 114 mass shootings with more than 1,300 victims in the United States. I mean, that's just a huge number. Yeah, Colorado ranked fifth in the country for most mass shootings since 1999. This was an analysis that was done by the Denver Post. But yeah, I mean, it's tough to square away. And it's hard to look at these situations and we're thinking about motive. We still don't know what a motive is. Uh, you know, we really want to get down to that. But that's what that's what happens. In lack of a motive, we kind of retreat to these other things. We need stricter gun control laws. I mean, that's going to be so tough to pass right now in the country. President Biden wants to do something, but will it get through Congress and the Senate? Most likely not. Other motives. That was why we look to things like the contagion effect. But, you know, there's no indication that he was motivated by this or inspired by that at all. As I mentioned, uh, his family even said he was distant, kind of uh, fits of paranoia, thinking people were chasing him. So these are all the things that we have to play with right now in figuring out what happens there. But I know that the residents there of Colorado, like I said, again, just struggling to understand why this happens there. And it just seems like it keeps happening there for them, unfortunately. Right. And one person I spoke with yesterday actually mentioned and warned against what he called the confirmation bias, which is sort of the tendency to to find patterns where they don't exist, but patterns that that back up your theory of something. Right. And so while Colorado, you know, as you mentioned, ranks fifth in the country since 1999 for mass shootings, it's important to point out that they're number five, which means that there's four ahead of that. And those other places in Washington state, Vermont, New Mexico, and even the district of Columbia, but we haven't seen a mass shooting in any of those places recently, but it just so happens that Colorado kind of became center stage either because of Columbine, because of high gun ownership rates. I mean, we don't know. We're still learning about the suspects. And, you know, one thing that that happens often with mass shootings, the suspect doesn't always come out alive. So we don't always have the answer to why somebody did what they did. This is one instance where we're going to learn a motive. We're going to learn how he, he bought his weapons and why and when and why he picked this place. And we don't always know that. So it's hard to look at the past decades of mass shootings and create patterns without the ability to analyze every single instance. And we don't always have the ability to do that. Right. But residents are really frustrated. And that's something that we've been hearing more now. Um, I think the, the idea of the thoughts and prayers, people are starting to say, I don't want to hear that. That's not enough. Thoughts and prayers, that's great. However... You know, we need action. We need to change things. And even if something does change, it's not going to bring back the loved ones for the people who, you know, who lost their their loved ones. Well, this is what we're going to be hearing about for some time. What kind of action can be taken on guns? What can we find out about motive and the suspect and continually hearing about the victims and their families? Alicia Victoria Lozano, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.